Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 279, and today's guest is Troy Bannister, co-founder and CEO of Particle Health. Building a startup is tough in any industry, but for a healthcare startup, there is a whole different level of complexity. It is a heavily regulated industry that has been slow to change in terms of digital transformation. As you'll hear from Troy, the majority of healthcare records are transmitted via fax machine. How is that even possible in our modern world of technology? But it is opportunities like this that catch the eye for entrepreneurs like Troy. Particle Health's mission is to enable simple and secure access to actionable healthcare data for digital health innovators. Its user-friendly API platform lets healthcare providers get patient records from over 270 million patients across the United States. The company announced a $25 million Series B round of funding back in July led by Canvas Ventures. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like some of the biggest challenges around building a startup in a heavily regulated industry like healthcare, Troy's background story, including his time as an EMT and how he got involved in the healthcare industry and joining Startup Health in its early days, all the details on Particle Health and how they are disrupting the healthcare industry, advice for recruiting and attracting a world-class team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, it's hard to believe that we have over 270 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built up an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies, and every episode includes lots of great advice to follow as well. If you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com slash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Troy. Troy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk a lot about Particle Health, which is a great company that you've been focused on building. Um, And I obviously want to talk about your background. But before we get into that, I did want to talk about the healthcare industry. And I always think about entrepreneurs that dive into the healthcare industry. I just admire them because it is a uh, industry that needs to be updated. It's got a lot of legacy behind it um, and a lot of old ways of doing things. So there's a ripe opportunity for technology to hopefully take advantage of that. But it's also not for the faint of heart because it's hard and there's regulations. It's a heavy regulated industry. So I thought that'd be a good place to start of like, if if I'm a, a startup entrepreneur thinking of diving into the healthcare industry, like what are some of the challenges that I need to be thinking about before I just dive in? Yeah, healthcare's tough. Um, this is not Tinder, right? There is not a right. uh, explosive <laughs> viral growth pattern that is is easily findable in in the health world. Um, I think there's three areas that an entrepreneur needs to understand well in order to be successful in the health tech space. The first is regulation. Um, no matter what you're building and how you're building it and why you're building it, you're going to have to understand some piece of the regulatory environment of healthcare. It could be as simple as HIPAA, which isn't the hardest thing to understand. Um, But there is a myriad of other rules and regulations that are coming out left and right. Understanding them is an advantage. Um, There are things that you can do if you understand the rules and regulations well to use them as a lever and not necessarily an impediment to growth. Um, For example, at Particle, we are using new pieces of legislation to do what we're doing. We wouldn't exist without some new legislation. Um, there's two rules if you want to look them up at you know at home. Uh, anti-information blocking under the 21st Century Cures Act, and a new one called TEFCA, 
that stands for the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement that's rolling out next early next year. And we wouldn't exist without these regulations. So, you know, these rules and stuff don't necessarily need to be blockers. They can be accelerants if you use them correctly. So that's one area. Um, number two is the technology side. Um, you have to understand systems and integrations and standards. There's HL7 and FHIR and CCDA. And you have to know this stuff in order to be effective at, at selling a, a product into the market that, that integrates into the market. Um, and then the last one, which I think is actually the hardest one, is just the, the economics of healthcare. You have to know how your customers make money in order to sell to them. And no two companies are alike. I'll, I'll tell you, there might be a telemedicine company that is fee for service and another one that's plays into value-based care and risk management. Um, there's a thousand million layers to this and none of it is, is logical. Um, it, <laughs> none of it is like naturally produced, uh, you know, uh, thinking, um, they're, they're manufactured, um, uh, models that the, that typically come from CMS or, or payers, um, that, that others have to play into. So I think those are the three really tough things that you have to learn in order to be, you know, effective in healthcare. Yeah. It's the, definitely not something you just dive in and say, all right, I'm going to go do this. It's definitely like the trend I've seen of other entrepreneurs in healthcare, uh, that have been on the podcast have backgrounds in the industry somehow, some way that led them down the path of this aha moment. So yeah. speaking of which, let's talk about your background. So uh, growing up, what were you like as a kid? Because from what I gathered, your entrepreneurial journey actually started when you were a teenager. Yeah, very good research. Yeah. Uh, I started a company in high school uh, called Ship Shape Boat Detail. <laughs> um, I grew up on a small island outside of Seattle and a lot of boats on that island. And so, you know, I thought, hey, nobody likes cleaning their boats. Uh, they need their boats cleaned at least, you know, in the beginning of the year and the end of the, the season. Um, and so I put out flyers and I, I that business actually I think is still going today. Um, I gave it to my little brother when I moved out for college and I think he gave it to people and I think, it, I think it's still going. That's uh, amazing. Awesome. Right. Um, and it's, that was, I, I always joke, if I retire, I'm going to go back to doing that because uh, <laughs> it's the best job in the world. You get up a little early, you're on the water, you know, you take your time. There's no rush. Um, it's a immediate satisfaction. You complete the boat. You're like, ah, oh, totally. job well done. <laughs> totally. Oh, you know, when we were 16 and doing this, the the internal joke was uh, our motto was we try pretty hard to make your boat seem clean. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of like the motto that we would we put it on the flyers and everything, and people loved it. <laughs> That's funny. And I, you know, I wish more teenagers were like that. You know, the shoveling the driveway that you know that just doesn't happen as much anymore. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I saw my friends working at grocery stores and you know Baskin and Robbins, and I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to be flexible and and uh, you know do my own thing. So yeah, that was that was a fun period of time. All right, so you went off to uh, pursue academic studies at the University of Washington. So what did you study there and what were some of the things that you learned? Yeah, I, I was actually in business school or business program in my first year there um, and was very interested in healthcare just by way of uh, a, a colleague of mine that was an EMT in their past. And so I signed up to become an EMT and a year later, I I had to switch to pre-med. It was just like no choice. Um, so I ended up getting, you know, getting into that pre-med kind of program, which at University of Washington was really tough, actually. Um, the class sizes were 800, 900 people. Um, they're curved against, a, you know, I think a 2.7. 
and you either swim or sink. And that was kind of the way that, that University of Washington ran things. I mean, there were there were semesters or quarters that I didn't talk to a single professor or TA. It was big lecture halls, online homework, and Scantron tests. And it was just cutthroat uh, yeah. test test environment. Um, and that that pushed me into kind of like getting really serious about, you know, understanding things and working really hard and um, being smart about how you study and take tests. Um, that was kind of my first foray into that kind of like, oh, I have to be smart <laughs> uh, to, to do well. Um, so yeah, that was that was a le- big learning experience for sure. And you you highlighted you were an EMT, which I thought was super interesting. So what did, what did, what did you learn from that? Because that you must have seen some crazy stuff. Yeah, I mean that again was a really awesome job. Um, I as I said, I, I had a it was actually a math teacher in high school that would always tell us stories about being an EMT, and I just kind of became enamored with it and signed up, um, got into the program, got a job, worked on weekends and holidays and over the summers. Um, and you know, 95% of it is as boring as you could possibly imagine. Uh, 5% of it is wildly interesting and, and nerve wracking and and exciting and, um, and really kind of life-changing in many ways. Um, and, you know, doing that as an 18 year old was really special too. Um, very surprised that they let an 18 year old drive an ambulance around. Um, but they do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Totally. Yeah. All right. So you did go off and, uh, originally attend medical school at Georgetown. Yes. So what happened at that point? Hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I put so much work and effort into the pre-med classes and getting good grades and taking the MCAT and doing all the interviews and da, 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 da. And I got in and, you know, within a, within a year, I, I had made my decision. This was not for me. And I think there was a moment in time where I realized, Hey, if I don't get the the specialty that I want. And I end up as a primary care doctor in, you know, Dakota, am I going to be happy? And the answer was clearly no. And that to me was the wrong reason to be a doctor. Um, uh, it was a big aha moment for me. Um, you know, no one, you know, an unhappy doctor is not going to be a good doctor. Um, and we need more good doctors in this world. So I, I ended up, um, with the credits that I had, had gotten, uh, graduating with a master's in biophysics of all things, um, which was a nice consolation prize for the, uh, you know, six figures I gave that, that organization. <laughs> All right. So what did you do after school? Uh, so after school, I, I actually moved to New York without a job, um, moved in with my two best friends from childhood that were also moving there, um, and ended up, uh, getting a job at Mount Sinai doing clinical research. Um, it was a very good, you know, entry level position, um, was running a few studies there for a while. And then I kind of got pulled into the digital health side of things there. And digital health back then was called M health, which is like the old term for it, which stood for mobile health. Um, And we were doing really simple things. Like what if we text people to remind them to take their medications, what happens? And we were proving that people weren't getting readmitted to the hospital as often. If you just reminded them via text. And I was like, Hey, this cell phone is not used in healthcare. Why? It should be used a lot more in healthcare. Um, so I quit Mount Sinai and joined a small venture capital firm out here in New York, um, really early stage firm with a couple people in it. And it grew relatively fast. I think we did about 200 investments in the three years that I was there. Um, Which firm so was that? It was, it was a company called Startup Health. Um, still around, still growing. You might know it. Yep. Um, so I was one of the first people working there and got kind of that first row seat at meeting thousands of entrepreneurs over my three years. Uh, and that's where I identified this problem. 
of I'm building a tech company in healthcare and I don't have access to patient data and I need access to patient data um, to, to build something. And that was the problem that I saw over and over and over again, every time I talked to an entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you definitely carved out a, a great path of working in the industry as an EMT to your studies, to working in a venture capital firm. So you kind of like just built this great foundation to go off and build a company, you know, by, you know, the, your experience in the VC industry of making investments is like a, you know, better version of getting an MBA, right? It's like real world problems, real world, you know, solving issues and running into uh, challenges along the way and being able to apply those lessons learned to your own company and hopefully avoid some. Um, so talk about that, you know, the more about, you know, you kind of got the inspiration, but starting and building something like this is not easy at all. So how did you get started? Um, you know, it's interesting. Having been working at Startup Health for so long and talking to so many entrepreneurs, um, it kind of gave me the courage to go do something. And I met so many entrepreneurs that were similar to me in many ways, or you know, even different than me in many ways. But I, I saw myself, I saw myself doing what they were doing and, and capable of doing what they were doing. Um, I was also very risk tolerant in my twenties, right? Like taking a, a shot at at this was not that that big of a risk. Um, so I, it was kind of the perfect storm of you know, I didn't really intend to go start a company when I started you know down this this path. Um, but it kind of just put me in the position to go do it. Um, it was like the writing was on the wall. Um, I actually quit my job without a plan or a job, a backup job or anything. Um, and I only had like a couple thousand dollars in the bank. <laughs> um, so it was, it was like true, like shot in the dark, uh, to try to make something happen. Um, and it was a lot of months of eating ramen and, you know, walking in circles in my apartment, asking myself, what the hell am I doing? Um, <laughs> a lot of months of that. Um, but slowly it builds up. And, and, you know, the first thing I tried to do, my first goal was I want to fill my calendar up every day with conversations with the right people. And that was my goal. And the first couple of weeks was one thing a day. And the next couple of weeks were two things a day. And the next couple of weeks were four, five, six. Um, and eventually I had that kind of momentum of, you know, one phone call led to two and two phone calls led to four. Um, and I kind of had built this like, you know, um, this kind of like engine of conversations that eventually got me the things I needed to start the company. So this was like, um, like customer discovery calls where you were like, or was it just people in the industry and you're kind of bouncing ideas? Like who are the right people that were filling up your, ca your calendar at this stage? I mean, so I had the, the mission of particle has never changed since day one. It was, I want to build a single place where you can pull an entire medical record with, you know, one click. Um, and I want it to be fast and easy and standardized and affordable and accessible and all these things, right? Um, just like Plaid or Stripe or Twilio accomplished. Like that's always been the mission. The way I was going to do it has changed a lot over the years. Um, the different partners and data sources and technologies have have iterated quite frequently. Um, you know, the last like three years, it those things haven't changed anymore once I found traction. But um, the first year or two was a lot of, of, of kind of like bouncing things off different people. So the way I approached it was I'm just essentially going to pitch my most, um, my most up-to-date version of what I think would work to every single person I could and let them tear it down and ask questions about why they don't think it would work or why they think it would work. Um, and so it was basically just pitching to everybody I could under the guise of like, this isn't a real thing yet, but like, what if I built this thing? 
And what if I did it this way? And I let people be like, you can't do it that way. Um, or you, maybe that would work, right? You need to talk to this other person and, and they might be able to help you think about it in a different way. So that was, that was the game for at least a year of, of work. Yeah. Cause like, if you think about the industry and it still probably happens today, but there's a, <laughs> there's a fun hashtag on your website called you know, hashtag destroy the fact, destroy the facts machine. Yes. So if you're requesting medical records, if I'm like a, an insurance company or something, I'm doing this by fax is yes. what I like. So it's just like, what? That's <laughs> the majority of it today. Yeah. It's still today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is absolutely insane that that's how things are done. Like, I can't remember the last time my fingers have touched the dial pad on a fax machine. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, it's wild. Yeah. I mean, there are hundreds, probably over a hundred million faxes a year. Uh, being sent everywhere. Yeah. At, at least crazy. Okay. But you hit on a key point that I think entrepreneurs sometimes get a little shy and concerned. Like what if somebody steals my idea? You're like talking about this idea and evangelizing it with all these people. What if someone stole your idea? So how, how would you, you know, I mean, you must've heard this before. Ideas are worth nothing. Uh, the, the way that you do it and the technology that you build and the execution of that is 99.9% .9 of the value. Um, there's always going to be copycats every single time. So expect it and understand it and position yourself against it, but don't be afraid to talk about your idea with people. I mean, don't be silly and go to a potential large competitor and give them the blueprints of what you're actually building. Right. Um, but the general premise and the value prop and, the um, you know, the, the methods of approach, um, you, you should be getting that message out to everybody you can, in my opinion. So how do you start to build it once you kind of have, you know, talk to enough people and, you know, cause what you're building, you're, you're <laughs> disrupting a heavily regulated industry that is using fax machines to solve this problem. So how do you actually start to build something that is of this complex? Um, I mean, you need to find the lowest cost validation path possible. And, you know, you hear the word MVP all the time, but like, what is an MVP? In, in my opinion, an MVP is, um, the the lowest cost partnership with a stakeholder that can tell you thumbs up or thumbs down like with real with real stuff and like our first customer that we validated with we did everything essentially manually like we had a i was in the code base typing in people's name date of birth address phone number and clicking search and waiting for our network broadcast to go out and pull find and pull the records i was manually downloading the records and then shipping them over through secure uh, methods to our customer. Like we were doing one by one by one. <laughs> um, there were nights when we were in our office until 2, 3 a.m. eating pizza, you know, running queries and passing data to our customers. Um, that was enough to get, you know, money in the bank from our first customer. It validated to everybody that, yes, we could do it. And yes, we could charge for it. And uh, that was the lowest cost way of pro proving that out. But how do you get access to the medical records? Like, how, like that's what I was wondering as I was preparing for this conversation. Like, you know, obviously as an individual, I have a medical record that sits in a uh, electronic medical record system somewhere somehow. So how does Particle able to access that and then connect it to the app that needs my information or something? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, there is a new way of doing it. And what people kind of call it is a network of network approach. Um, so we had to go through certifications and um, a bunch of testing and all these hoops, uh, essentially to get certified 
certified through the government is like, it's a pretty simple way of saying it, but essentially to get certified through the government to have the trust to go ping these EMRs for the, for the records. These new regulations basically say you can't just lock the data away. You have to be able to share that data with organizations that are, are um, trusted and, and um, uh, certified to get access to this. So a doctor requesting a record on behalf of a patient that's going to be coming in for an appointment has the legal right to access this information to treat the patient. And so Particle is just a conduit to that legal premise. We are just the technology that allows that doctor to get that record. Um, it's no special contracting. It's no special negotiations that we have. It's just leveraging policy in a way that gives us access to this data. So how does it work today? So like, I guess, bring us up to speed on particle health and, you know, like how, how does it work? And like, what's, who are the typical customers that are using this? So the way it works is pretty simple. Um, you put in someone's name, date of birth, address, phone number through our API. Um, we will take that. We have a master patient index and a record locator service, which are basically um, algorithmic approaches of understanding where that patient's records might be around the United States. And then querying those different places, matching those demographics to the record on file, downloading those records. And on average, we find about 135 files per patient. Um, so we take all those different files, which are different standards and versions and formats, and we standardize them all. Um, and we create a longitudinal chronological view of that patient's record with, with all those different files that we found. Um, we parse them out and we organize them and we tag them and we do all these things. Um, and then we pass it back through the API to our customer. Um, what we now do is we take that whole entire patient record and we can extract out different pieces of it and organize it specific to a use case. So if you are a cancer patient, we will go query every cancer center in the United States, find all your records from all the, you know, maybe a trip to Mount Sinai or to like Cedar Sinai or Memorial Sloan Kettering, right? We'll go find all those records. We'll consolidate them down to a single view and then we'll pull out all the cancer related information and display it uh, for an, an oncologist in a way that an oncologist understands and, and can find valuable. So we're kind of applying some data product, you know, processing on top of the record now. Um, so that's kind of like the end to end build that we have. Which is, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it sounds like that's how it should be done in today's modern world of technology, but it's, um, it's working. We, we have a 92% success rate in finding records across the United States today. Wow. That is amazing. Just with name, date of birth, address, and phone number. Yeah. And is this, so this is something I was learning a lot, but maybe it makes sense to loop it into this conversation, you know, fire, right? So is this, is that the, the standards of how these, this information is coming back to you or like, Oh, I wish. Um, fire is like the new, the new industry standard. And I say new, it's like six years old. <laughs> okay. um, none of the endpoints that we plug into are on fire today. It's all what's called CCDA. It's a con it's called a continuity of care document. It's very, very old. It's nested XML. So there's no rhyme or reason to the way that the orders, the data is really structured or organized in those files. So we take that CCDA or I should say hundreds of CCDAs that we find on a single patient and we'll con convert all of that to a single fire bundle. Um, so we do that conversion to the new standard, quote unquote, new standard. What we found though is most people don't really 
use fire very effectively. It's, it's a complicated standard. It's not simple to use. I'd say about 50% of the folks that we sell into actually know how to use it and are comfortable using it. The other half do not want it. They're like, I don't, uh, I have to learn an entire new data standard and um, it's hard. So this is why we're now taking that fire record and processing out these data products that are JSON. They're just like developer friendly formats. Now, raising capital for this, you obviously had experience doing it. So I'm assuming that gave you a leg up as far as having connections. Um, but it just seems like you had all the ducks in a row. If you started to build a product, you had a customer and you know, just raising capital in the early stages, it's always hard. But it sounds like you were a leg up of huge market opportunity. No one else is doing this. We've got the tech figured out. We need the capital to help build this, right? Like it's these you know, platform companies, like you said, like the stripes of the world, like they, they're each industry needs this for like credit card verification of your identity, thinking of all these like alloy and all these great companies that are building these platforms. They're hard to build. But if I was a VC, I would be like, sign me up. I mean, that particle health sounds like, you know, this is going to be a, you know, game changing anchor company in my portfolio. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, think, <laughs> I know I'm preaching to the choir here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, just like to respond to that, like it definitely wasn't as easy as having the ducks in a row and make it, it's not, it's not easy. Um, you know, I've never, never been an entrepreneur before I was raising our first round when I was 28 or 29. So, you know, I didn't have the credibility that, um, I think serial entrepreneurs present, at, you know, when fundraising, right. Um, I definitely understood the way it worked and I understood how, you know, a, you know, an uncapped note <laughs> is structured. So like I had some of the knowledge that I, that was helpful for me to go raise, but I didn't have like a big roster of VCs, like waiting to like write me a check. That's that, that would have been awesome. Um, it took us a while. Um, I think most people uh, three, four years ago when we were starting to raise did not believe that this was a thing. And, okay. I, and, and I actually like, I understand where they're coming from. Like there have been so many approaches and attempts at solving this problem in healthcare. Um, none of which have actually panned out that well in the, in the history of this problem um, that there's a lot of, you know, skepticism about the, the value prop and the scalability and the regulatory speed of adoption. Um, I think the good news is like, we've, we've crossed a major critical mass, you know, point right now where we are getting a 92% success rate. We are finding 135 records per search. We are successful in taking all those records and processing them and standardizing them and delivering value to, you know, 40 plus customers now. Um, so they're, they're, the validation was met with skepticism for sure. Um, Got it. Uh, but I think we're now kind of entering into a new era where people are accepting that this is working. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. So you're dealing with companies that are like, yeah, we've, we've seen that problem before. It's been going on for years yes. and there's lots of companies that try to solve it and all failed. Don't yes. sign me up. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The number one objection we got with every customer in the early days was, I don't believe you, uh, prove it. And so we had to run it. We've, we've had to run a pilot with almost every customer that we've onboarded just to prove that we can get that 90% hit rate and get full records. Yeah. Okay, so you raised your A round in 2020, 12 million. And this past summer, you raised your, or you announced your B round 25 million. So talk about the company today, you know, whatever you could share, scale, number of employees, growth plans ahead, whatever you could share. Yeah, um, I think the most important thing is, you know, when we started the company, we wanted to build an API where you could put in someone's information and get all their records back. 
And, you know, as of maybe six months ago, we did that. Like that mission is check the box. Like we did it. Um, what we're now thinking about is how valuable is that raw data to a customer? It's kind of valuable. Um, a doctor sitting down with you for, you know, a 15 minute virtual consult doesn't want 135 files on a patient, <laughs> right? They just want to know what they need to know to make a good decision that will result in a better outcome for that patient. Um, and so that is why this kind of new space that we're pushing into is really around insight generation. It's really around um, uh, analytics and data products that are of high value to a customer decision-making process. So that's kind of the like, evolutionary direction that particles moving in. Um, there are a lot of other kind of, you know, players in the space that are more focused on being network infrastructure players. Um, they want to be under Tefka. There's this concept of it's called a QHIN, a qualified health information network that is essentially validated by the government to be a, you know, staple of the national infrastructure of healthcare data exchange. We do not want to be a QHIN. We don't want to be a network component. We want to sit on top of all the networks and we want to be that value add layer that can make sense of that information and reduce and ease the implementations as like an on-ramp to all the networks. We want to be the one-stop shop that connects all the pieces together. Um, so that's really kind of like this push that we're making right now is um, away from being infrastructure at, at a fundamental level and into being a value add layer that is still infrastructure at the end of the day because APIs and, and data processing, but um, not as fundamental as, as some of these other players are kind of trying to, to carve out for themselves, which by the way, is like a really good place to be. If you're able to carve out yourself as, you know, let's just say a network for labs, um, that's really valuable for everybody. <laughs> so like hats off, go for it. I support that. Um, but we're going to sit on top of that network and leverage the stuff that they're building uh, in service of our customers. Um, so anyway, that was a kind of rabbit hole to answer more of your question. We're like 45 people. Um, you know, we've got about two years of runway, so we're, we're sitting healthy right now through the kind of economic turbulence, which I'm very grateful for. So we're being very careful about our spend. Um, we're being very careful about our runway. And the idea is to raise our next and maybe final round ever, um, in, you know, a year and a half to two years. And what is the business model? So like, like how are you going to market? Because I would imagine there's a lot of use cases. So how do you identify, you know, how, how do companies identify you or vice versa as far as your yeah. go to market? So we kind of have like two buckets of products. We've got the, the core API, which is Fire or CCDA, which is like the raw data or, or organized data that we're kind of sending through the first step of our data pipeline. Um, that is... Um, it's a, the, the pricing is essentially consumption-based. The thing that is always interesting to me is when we're selling to customers, it costs us money to run a query, right? We have to go do the broadcast search. We have to pay our, our data partners um, a fee, you know, to do this too. Like they're not just giving us data for free. Um, we have to house the data. We have to run computing on the data to transform it from CCD to fire and from fire to data products. So it costs us money to run a query and deliver it. So we we essentially charge a per query fee that gives us a little bit of margin at the top of the tiers. And so the more you use it, the the API, the higher your usage is of the API, um, the 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 smaller the margin we get and the cheaper per query price that our customers get. So it's it's consumption based, and the more you use it, the cheaper per query up to a certain point where we just can't 
can't go anymore or we start losing money. Um, so um, the way we think about it is the more processing and output that we that we put into the the data um, through the API, the the higher the price, right? If we're taking that CCDA and converting it to Fire, and then we're taking that Fire bundle and we're converting it to a data product, and we're taking that data product and we're applying analytics to it, that costs us more and more money to do. And so we have to charge a little bit more, the, the more processing and, and insight generation we do off of that record. So that's basically the premise. So what have been the biggest lessons learned, you know, through this journey for you? Oh my God, where do I start? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been a bit of a wild ride, man. Um, I think some of the biggest lessons, you know, I think like in retrospect with the market today, I would probably, I would focus on unit economics really early on in the game and really understand what are my costs and what is the value to my customer and, and like, how do I price this thing in a way that from day one is a clear, you know, 10x ROI to the customer and a clear margin for particle. Um, that is like obviously really important right now in this market to have good margins and have good unit economics. It's something that I think startups often don't think about too much in the early days. They're like, let's just get people to use it. Let's just get people to sign up. And that's okay, right? You can, you can give massively discounted pricing to early customers, but you got to know where that pricing has to get to at a certain point. And you have to have really good business fundamentals around the ROI to the customer. Like you have to be obsessed about, I'm charging, I'm just going to make this up, but like I'm charging this customer 50 cents to query our API and they're getting $10 back, you know, in ROI on their end. That you have to know that. And you should start being obsessed with that on day one of your business. Um, that is like the most important thing in my opinion. Um, and that's something we've, you know, been focused on for a while now, but we weren't really obsessed with it in the early days. We were like kind of spray and pray and let's learn trial and error. And like, let's let our customers tell us what they, they're, they're thinking behind the scenes. You got to be really aggressive on this, this kind of fundamental piece of, of, uh, unit economics and ROI for customers. Um, I think that's one really big lesson that I've been thinking about a lot about lately, um, I also think another one really quick is hire really good people, pay them really well and give them a good amount of equity in your business. Um, the, the business will live in or die based on who you hire and, and how happy they are and how willing they are to like go above and beyond to get, get things done that need to get done. Um, and I think we've been pretty good at that at particle. Um, and it's like something I can constantly remind myself of like, Go over market if you're going to get somebody really, really good to come in here and, and change the game here for you. So I don't know. Those are two quick lessons that are kind of relevant in my head right now. So uh, you brought up a point that I was going to talk about. So hiring is hard. So what advice would you have give there? Like, are there particular job functions that are more difficult than others? You know, most companies struggle with engineering or sales or uh, so. So what what have you learned there? I, it, it depends on what's going on, right? Like... Through the four years I've been hiring, um, there have been some years where like engineering is really easy to hire for. And some years where like, we couldn't find a good engineer to save our lives. Um, it's totally dependent on the market is like, oh my God, it's such a big component and variable in hiring. It's, it is like, it's everything. Um, I just, gosh, there were, there were moments of time when like salaries were going totally through the roof. Um, and we're like, what are we going to do? We can't afford to hire people like at that rate. It's insane. Um, so I, I don't really have any tricks, right? Like there, there's like, 
you know, you, I think the key is continuously refine your process. Where are you posting these job postings? Which third-party sources are you using? How are you writing your JDs? Um, what is the first you know, contact point look like between the candidate and your organization? Who's talking to them? What are they saying? Are they selling them? Or are they, you know, trying to, you know, vet them? Like, um, you have to give the candidate a really excellent experience um, throughout the entire process, or you're not going to get them like full stop. Um, and that's hard. And that's just, that's just iteration. It's just full iteration, um, constantly changing, 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 getting faster and better and smarter about how you do it. Um, no secret though, right? Well, I want to break that down a little bit because I think a lot of yeah. founders you know, struggle with like at what point, you know, what is your infrastructure as it relates to hiring? Do you have a people ops team? At what point did you bring that into the company? You know, yeah. do you leverage outside staffing, recruiting firms, executive search firms? Like how, how do you orchestrate the all whole the thing? above? Yeah, okay. all the above. I mean, I think it's 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 smart to spend a lot of money on hiring. Um it it's it, it's it's just a necessary evil. Um, you have to have the best recruiting function to get the best people, or you're not going to get them and you're not going to succeed as well as you want to. Um, so we use executive executive search firms that which are very, very expensive. <laughs> um, but here's why. Um, they can get very happy people in their current jobs to pick up the phone and talk to you. And you can't do that on your own. You, you just can't get that really top tier person that is crushing it at their current job to entertain the idea about jumping ship and joining your team, right? But executive search firms can do that. That's what they, that's why you pay them. Um, we do use third-party recruiters and, you know, here's why. Every now and again, they send us a really, really, really good candidate that we hire and we pay the contingency fee. And now we have a really, really good team member, <laughs> um, yeah. right? Like, you, or you just miss that candidate. Um, and we do have an internal recruiter and here's why. They spend 24 hours of their day or, you know, they, they're full time um, just working on that, that, that process of getting people to come in, following up quickly, getting them an offer quickly, negotiating that offer quickly, giving them a good experience, communication, keeping them warm. Like, you just have to spend the money on these things. Um, that's just the competitive environment of, of hiring in this world. Um, but it results in a really good team that produces better than a really bad team. <laughs> and like, that's just what you need to do. And it, well, you, the candidate experience piece, I think, is so key that a lot of companies miss out on that. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, I can see why you have such a great team because that is such a critical part. Yeah, it's it's make or break, for sure. So you talked about, um, you know, you have runway. You're fortunate <laughs> um, for entrepreneurs that are out there raising capital now, and you just read the news and it's gloom and doom, and valuations are coming down, and raising capital is so hard. Yet there's money out there that needs to get deployed. So um, what advice would you give there? I think it depends on where you're raising. If you're doing a seed or a series A round, I think there's still plenty of opportunity out there for you to get a you know reasonable valuation and a good amount of cash. And um, I think you're I think it's it's gonna be a little bit harder, but not like in, impossible. Um, I'm seeing big rounds happen in the seed and A rounds range today, still. Um if you're doing a B or a C or a D, um, I think, you know, I'm definitely not the uh, expert here, right? But my opinion is wait as long as you possibly can. Um, if you have to take a line of credit um, to get three, six more months, I think that's definitely something you want in your back pocket. Um, I think time is going to be the key here. I think my, my best guess 
which again, I am not a professional, is second half of next year, I think things will start to pick back up slowly. Um, 2024, I think we're going to be back to like, you know, maybe 2018, 2019, you know, maybe 2020 levels um, of investment, fingers crossed. Um, but uh, that's that's just my best guess. So time is, is your biggest lever right now. Um, I think if you have to go raise, um, think about bridge rounds. Think about, you know, taking a, a small, maybe not so favorable note, uncapped note or something, right? To get, you have to get a little creative about how you're going to get some more cash in the door. Because if you are not on a path towards profitability and your margins or your EBITDAs are not healthy right now, you are not going to raise a good round at the C or D range today. You're just not going to. Um, so uh, time, if you can get more time, get more time. Yeah, that's great feedback. I mean, I just think uh, things are way too frothy and the valuations, like the the number of like, you know, unicorn valuations, it was just like out of control. It's like, can't can't be sustainable. So I think when you look at these reports, a lot of it is adjustment. It's not necessarily gloom and doom. And maybe there's going to be a dip of gloom and doom, but I hope, I agree with your point. Like, I think there'll be a coming out of that. And it's just going to be what, normal should be. I agree. <laughs> and that's okay I, to be normal. <laughs> it's a healthy reset and it had yes. to happen. Um, it had to happen. So yes. like, I think everyone's going to be better off in the end. Um, I mean, like I, I say the word margins now 37 times a day. And if we weren't in this place, like this market today, I probably would be saying margins two times a day. Um, right. So um, <laughs> I see this as a, a, a push towards, you know, profitability, towards a healthy business, towards being, you know, financially responsible, um, which is a nice thing a little bit, right? Like it's, it's kind of back to basics and fundamentals, um, which are kind of have been disregarded over the last, you know, couple of years, um, in favor of just growth, 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 growth. So, um, I, I mean, if, if you can pull it off and you can get there, then you're going to build a really good company and you'll be rewarded for that. Yep. All right. Three apps you can't live without. Ooh, uh, seamless, otherwise otherwise known as Grubhub or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. Love love the rainy cold day, you know, ordering of of pho or ramen or something. That's that's something I could never. <laughs> I need I need ramen delivered to my door at least once every couple of weeks. <laughs> um, I think two is I'll, this is an easy one, but Uber or or Lyft, right? Like sure. that is that has been maybe one of the most um, profound life changes as it relates to like apps, I think, or technology in the last couple of years. I, I was laughing with, uh, I think my girlfriend and I were called an Uber the other day and a car pulled up and we tried to get into it and it was just not the right car. It was somebody else's <laughs> car. And they were so nonchalant. They were like, nope, they had their window rolled down a little bit. They're like, not an Uber. And it was like a normal thing. And I was like, that is so weird that that is normal today, right? <laughs> like, right, totally. Six years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, that would have been like not okay to do that. Right. Um, and let's see, third app. These are all so boring. Um, Spotify. I'm just going to got to say Spotify. I love music. I love podcasts. And I use the heck out of that app. Um, it's a great yeah. app. It's a perfect music app. It really is. I mean, I, I, I do miss, you know, because I'm, you know, the days of the CDs were amazing of in cassette tapes back in the day, but like waiting for the album to come out and standing in line for the, you know, the release. Totally. And I do miss that piece, but to have the world music catalog at, in your phone is just, 
you know, every day is like, like I just got my Spotify, you know, unwrapped or whatever the yeah. you know, your, your review is. And I mean, I listen to 60,000 minutes of music <laughs> like, oh, yeah. totally. for, for how much I pay them a, a month. I'm like, I, I mean, there's a lot of ROI there. <laughs> totally. It's incredible. But you're right. Like I miss, you know, like to that same vein of like Sam Goody or whatever. I miss like block, going to Blockbuster and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. running into people, you know, and recommending movies. <laughs> that that was like a very special place in my heart when I was younger. Um, and the same thing applies to like the, the Capitol Records or Sam Goody or whatever those were. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Tower records back in the day, waiting mm-hmm. for the uh, second Pearl Jam to come out. So that was good <laughs> <Yeah>. times. So, <laughs> all right. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Ooh, um, I love to cook and eat food. Um, one of my best friends growing up and I lived with in New York for a long time is a professional chef. And he's like, he's like a person I look up to, honestly. Um, he was like executive sous chef at 11 Madison Park here in New York, which is like number one restaurant in the world. Um, wow. he, he was like, he is like, like amazing. And I lived with him for so many years. He really rubbed off on me. And so I am still very passionate and obsessed with, uh, getting friends together and cooking a meal and sharing a meal together or going out to a good restaurant once in a while. Um, so that's one thing for sure. Um, also music, I play music. Um, I played drums for a really long time and I can't do that in New York very easily. So I, I picked up <laughs> guitar and I play a little guitar now. Um, nice. so yeah, those are a couple of pretty basic things. And last question, what's um, any good books, podcasts that you recommend? Um, I've, I got sucked into Smartless. I don't know if you've been listening to Smartless at all. Um, it's No, but I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're, those guys crack me up. They like it's funny. Okay. Every time I listen to it, I laugh out loud. And yeah. uh, it's my go-to podcast when I'm like folding laundry or like, you know, doing chores around the house. Um, so I'll listen to that every Monday right now. And I got sucked into their, their banter. Um, and I really, I really get a kick out of it. So I say that's the podcast I'm, uh, I'm listening to most right now. Got it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good crew they have there. So I could see why it would be absolutely hysterical. So, well, Troy, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work you're doing and the team at Particle Health and obviously all the great advice you shared along the way. Well, thanks for having me. It's been it's been great. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.